Wait. Yes? I don't know what I'm drinking. Hold on. Welcome to the Xanadu Cinema Pleasure Dome with Wendy Bowlesby and Melissa Kirscher. Welcome, listeners, to another episode of Xanadu Cinema Pleasure Dome. I am one of your co-hosts, Wendy, joined from far and across the continent by my fellow intrepid explorer in all things cinematic and wine-related, Melissa. Yeah, that was you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I wasn't sure if you were going to say it first or if I was going to I know, in. we always sort of wonder about that, don't we? Yeah. Oh, well. that's a, we'll figure it out one of these days. I can fix oh, it in it, post. Yeah, that's what I love about you. <laughs> And listeners, we are joined tonight by a very special guest. I always say tonight because we record at night, but then I listen during the daytime and then I feel like an ass. So we are joined for this episode. There we go. Mm. Listeners, we are joined for this episode by a new Pleasure Dome correspondent. This would be Mr. Duck Washington. Aloha. Yay, Duck. (laughs) Yay. Yay. (laughs) Duck is, uh, he's kind of in our circle of shenanigators. Yeah, like what, he's what do you a mean, kind actor. of. He is in our circle of shenanigators. Well, I feel like we have our close circle of shenanigators, which let's be honest, that's mostly like you and Jerry, like causing trouble. <laughs> Jerry you're and I prime are like shenanigators. You're 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 shenanigator prime. We are right. binary stars of shenanigation. Yes, you know, I feel like there's an electron cloud, you know, of all of our friends who are shenanigators. So, it's true. Yeah. You know, there are some people closer to the core than others, but, you know, people move in and out. And you know, it's, and I mean, like, they go yeah. off and do their own shenanigans, too. I'm not saying that they need us to make shenanigans. But then we all orbit together closely, and there's some sort of, you know, eclipse of shenanigans that happens, and then things then things get interesting. And Duck is somebody who often gets pulled into random projects. I, I yes. do indeed. <laughs> yes. Very exciting ways. Yay. So tonight, today, this episode, God damn it, I'm going to shift my semantics on that one of these years. Um, this episode, I am drinking. We, we, I think we are all drinking. Oh, we are. Yes, we indeed. are. Yes. Yeah. I am on some red wine, which is, as we know, one of my favorites. This is how great, how great is this label? <laughs> the wine brand is Low Hanging Fruit. <laughs> <laughs> I am drinking low-hanging fruit Merlot. I I had the most horrible, awful ideas for what that label would look like. <laughs> oh, but it's the reserve, FYI. So it's I don't know if that really, makes it better. <laughs> it's really easy to get, but it's the special stuff. I'm having the Lovecraftian moment of I've not seen the label, and so my mind is filling in the gaps, and it's not helping. There is sort of a tentacular design on the label. Okay, okay. Well, then apparently I'm not far off. Yeah, yeah. Okay. But it's the reserve. I want you to know that even though this is the low-hanging fruit, this is the more special low-hanging fruit. <laughs> it's, um, it's somehow 
more elevated than the other? Yeah, yeah like only for tall people. Okay. <laughs> Which, why I'm drinking uh, it, I don't know. All right. What are you guys? What are you guys up to? We have a uh, gnarly head cab Sauvignon from Dude. 2013. Woohoo! Dude, um, it 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 is firm and fruity. <laughs> it really is. It is. <laughs> Um, I don't know how I would describe mine. I mean, it's Merlot. Merlot is a wine that I get when I don't really want to have an opinion. <laughs> like, I, I don't mean to, I don't mean to diss Merlot, but it's a little bit of like drive time wine. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You know, sometimes you need that, that middle of the strike zone, you know, not too surprising Merlot. And, you know, the, the cab, you know, usually cabs are super dry and, this one's a little sweeter, and the color is really a lot of fun. It's just this beautiful red. Yeah, the color on my Merlot is actually really nice. It's got really bright pinkish tones in there. You know, it's it's inoffensive. Mm-hmm. It's the Merrick Garland of wines. <laughs> It'll get you drunk. <laughs> <laughs> it's a moderate who, you know, is going to bring balance to any sort of divided room. Everybody can agree we'll drink this. Yeah. Which is pretty much unlike what we're going to talk about tonight. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) All right. For this episode, listeners, our topic is racially inappropriate movies. Yes. So, um, uh, like, there's no... I feel like we need to address why we brought Duck on, but how do you bring that up without it sounding well, really inappropriate? Well, well, it's it's like how he carefully tried to couch it in my email. It's like, okay, so Wendy and I are lily white. <laughs> <laughs> and we probably, if we're going to do a racially inappropriate episode, we should probably... Um, you know, include somebody, not us. Yes, yes, because I, I'm sure, you know, Duck uh, has many... A, more opinions than we would on on these things or maybe just might. a different perspective but, well yeah, you know, you, but yeah a much more like insider perspective insider is not the right word it's i mean you you live in a i'm brown you're brown <laughs> <laughs> I'm authentic um, I'm trying to um, but no but i appreciate i appreciate you guys thinking you know like if we're going to talk about this it's nice to have you know it'd be nice to have you know at least a person of color oh yeah in the conversation Mm -hmm. um you know because i think a lot of people might not do that yeah might might lead them down some interesting paths yes in in fact we've done that before (laughs) (laughs) yes because we actually uh long long ago right uh probably within the first 10 episodes we ever did we did a uh problematic media podcast mm. as the subject and um Kelvin. Wasn't with Kelvin, Kelvin who is also one of the whitest white people who ever whited and uh the three of us talking about you know it wasn't just like racially inappropriate i mean movies, kelvin but, looks yeah. kelvin kelvin would make tilda swinton look ethnic yes so, yeah yeah yeah, yeah. It, but that topic was also about like rapey things yes. and just movies that when you go back you're like oh how did i not notice this was awful oh. yeah yeah it, it was much more general than this but the, no this is this is very specifically about racism in movies and I'm, you know, pretty aware of it. And I feel like, you know, Wendy's pretty aware of it. But, you know, as people who have not grown up with that frame of reference, you know, the personal frame of reference, Mm -hmm. we're going to have blind spots. So definitely. (laughs) 
Hey, thanks for coming on and talking yes. with us, Duck. Yes, yeah. my pleasure. And we're going to be talking about all kinds of different brown people, not just my kind of brown people. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> we're, we're all flavors of brown people here. <laughs> Lightly mm, tanned. Chocolate. It just, what? <laughs> and and uh-huh. also, um, the other reason I wanted to have you on is because you recently did a show called well, the, the Panda Show. Caucasian Aggressive Pandas and Other Mulatto Tales. I knew I was going to screw it up if I tried to remember <laughs> all the words. Okay. <laughs> Um, so. Which was basically yeah. about, uh, well, it was inspired by my experiences growing up as a multiracial individual mm-hmm. and kind of the craziness that comes out of that and the mm-hmm. emotions that come out of that, but done in a comedic way where, you know, like, for example, there's a scene where um, I come across two genetically engineered pandas who have decided that they hate white people and they have to decide <laughs> whether or not I'm a white person or not because I'm mixed you know mixed race um and so then they put me through all these kinds of stereotypical challenges to see and they're just the kind of things that i would get asked sometimes in my in my daily life to Mm -hmm. prove that i'm black or not um but that kind of a comedic setup is kind of like the basis for okay for the play which is getting remounted in the minnesota fringe festival this summer (gasps) yay yay Yay! i could actually have a chance to go see it then yay All right, so shall we kick this off? Who wants to start? I, I feel like we could just start with ground zero. Well, it's not like the start of all this, but it, I mean, the big one that often gets brought up in episodes or articles about racism in movies, people have to talk about Song of the South. Song of the South. <laughs> Zippity-doo-dah, zippity-yay. What a wonderful day. Yay. Yeah. Um, You know, which is basically like the theme of Disney for um, quite a long time. I got a judgy head shake from my husband just for singing it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, not okay. The thing that that amazes me about Song of the South is that it has been so cleared away by Disney. It's like, it, it never happened. In some aspects, In some though. aspects. And yet you go to one of their theme parks and they still have the ride open? I never, I'll never, and, and like, well, and it, it's funny because the ride, like in Disneyland, uh-huh. like the ride was built in 1990. It's mm-hmm. not an old ride. Right. No. You know, but... But it's I new. went. I was like, I was like, oh, I'm gonna get on Splash Mountain, and I sat on this ride, and we started to go through, and I was like, wait a second, this is a Song of the South ride. <laughs> yes, it is. It's I'm, it's the 2000s. How in the world did I end up on a Song of the South ride? <laughs> well, and it's dependent, especially as, like all Disney rides, like on you knowing the source material a little bit like oh the nostalgia of Br'er Rabbit and Br'er Fox and Br'er Bear isn't it great except that literally 98% of the people going on that ride have probably never seen the movie and are probably just like I don't know what the hell's going on but I like the ride they know the song zippity doo dah and that's and that's it they have no idea what the encompassing media is (laughs) So bizarre. I um, I recently went back and watched parts of Song of the South, um, kind of in preparation for talking today. Mm-hmm. And um, it's an interesting film. Like, it's a film of a different time that... Oh, yeah. And, like, 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 I sit down and I think about why this movie is racist. Because yeah. it's not... It's not 
you know, showing black people doing things that are horrible or terrible. Um, but it's kind of it kind of plays on that magical Negro in a little bit. Uncle Remus is oh, yeah. this happy oh, go lucky guy <laughs> that can talk to animated birds and helps the little white children and um I uh, believe you meant chillins. Chillins. <laughs> um <laughs> And there and there's also the um kind of the the benevolent white man has uh, given me a place to live. Yes. And kind of that really whitewashed version of you know, kind of slavery. like kind of like Gone with the Wind, where everybody's oh, yeah. kind of happy to be where they are, despite the fact that they're in these horrible, horrible conditions. Mm-hmm. Well, um, yeah, despite the fact that they don't have a choice about it, he's really right. a member of the family. That's mm-hmm. why we keep him out back in a woodshed. <laughs> <laughs> Precisely. Um, but then even aside from the, the Uncle Remus parts of the movie, the, the parts where they go into the Br'er Rabbit stories, I think, are just as equally as troubling. Because Br'er Rabbit definitely has this this very Southern, like, historical, Black kind of speech pattern. Mm-hmm. Um, but in, and at, at the same time is kind of this, like, bumbling conniving little character of a cartoon um and i think i think when you put that together it kind of puts an emblem on on these things as being connected to being lazy or trying to get around certain Mm -hmm. aspects um which i think are really tricky um it is it is a goofy movie it has a tar baby in it It like it's a tar baby i mean you don't get more uncomfortable racially than putting something in your movie (sighs) called a tar baby which i know is from you know african folklore but Mm -hmm. you know traditionally tar baby is a derogatory term for an african-american and would have been when this movie was originally produced yes oh oh yes oh yes but uh oh oh yes you know (laughs) it's really interesting to me too because like at the time, this would have been one of the more positive representations of an yeah. African-American on film. Well, the, the fact that uh, African-Americans being represented on film were a rare enough thing in mm-hmm. those days, just as it was, negative or positive, it's it, it's an interesting representation. I mean, the only yeah. at that time, the only person in the... Who the only African-American who'd ever won an Academy Award is, is uh, Hattie... Uh, Heidi McDaniel. Mc- McDaniel, McDaniel. Who, who is also in the Song of the South. Yes. Um, this movie was 1946. 1946, which is, which is earlier than I thought because I remember seeing it in the theater because I saw it on one of the- It has been re-released multiple times. Yeah. And, um, and yeah. I, I think it must have been in the 70s when it was last re-released. It, 1986, I guess. <gasps> I was reading. Oh my god! <laughs> wow. But that might have been a DVD, or that might have been a VHS re-release. It, it I know it wasn't been. DVD because it was never released well, on DVD in the states. It did get a laserdisc release overseas because you can still get rarely now, but it used to be you could go on uh, eBay and find Japanese laserdiscs of Song of the South. Well, I was I was kind of floored when I went to look up the video. Not only did the whole movie come up on YouTube, like. Yeah. Like nothing. But then a whole bunch of ads for selling the movie on DVD did. Yeah. I was like, oh, this movie is not really hard to find anymore. (laughs) It really isn't. Like, Disney doesn't know what to do with it. Yeah. But at least they're not pretending it doesn't exist anymore. Right? True. Like, I think think they're depending on on the span of time and how there are a lot of of movies. There are there's a lot of media that w- if we're going to enjoy it at all, we have to accept it was made at a different time. 
Mm-hmm. Not that that makes it right, but that also, like, well, it's just unfortunate that in that time, women are treated as property and it's okay to slap them around. Mm-hmm. But I still like to watch this movie. Eh. Mm-hmm. Or any number of other Disney movies between this point in time and, you know, just even up through the 90s, you'd get... Oh, a scene or two, which is just mm-hmm. shockingly racist. You know, whether it's Peter Pan and the Why is the Red Man Red song or the uh, the, the big-lipped fish in uh, uh, The Little Mermaid right. or the, the Siamese song in um, uh, Lady, Lady and the, the Tramp. Tramp. Well, okay. Yeah. I, I didn't have Little Mermaid on my list, but I do kind of want to touch on that. Like, mm-hmm. is it racist – when like to have a big lipped crab when that crab is clearly being voiced by a black actor mm. a I, think, Caribbean, I think like I meant think... to be a Caribbean black man like is it racist to make the like I and also the crab is portrayed overwhelmingly positively well that's true I think I think it is though because I think it's not just like we're gonna try to make this look exactly like this person it's we're gonna accentuate features mm-hmm. like you know it wasn't uh. a black man's lip it was an over exact over exaggerated lips that you know that depict depict that kind of and, do, an and also do you need to give a crab lips like right. that just have an actor <laughs> voice it you're not going to buy a caribbean crab unless it has big lips that's a little weird first off we have a talking crab <laughs> But uh, uh, Warner Brothers has started doing something that I really like with some of their old problematic mm-hmm. films like this, mm-hmm. where they're now putting a disclaimer at the beginning. It's like we don't want to we don't want to ignore that this is a part of history, and we want to identify straight off the bat before you watch this that there are things that are wrong with this cartoon that we made. Mm-hmm. But here you go, absolutely, and, well, that's, and I appreciate yeah. that because it does nobody awesome. any good to to erase it if we erase it then we lose sight of the fact of what we've learned since then. Right. Right, right, exactly. And uh, it's actually a good launching point for one of the things on my list. So if we're kind of done with Song of the South, we can bring it up later. Yeah, but yeah. I can, move in, I can move into Cabin in the Sky. Yeah. Cabin in the Sky. Cabin in the Sky, which was 1943, uh, three years before Song of the South. So it's kind of in that, that same territory. I find it really interesting because it's a, it's a musical with an all-black cast. And it was mm-hmm. kind of that rare bird where um, a few studios were putting out movies that would hopefully attract black audiences. So Cabin in the Sky being made in 1943. Do you know who directed it? Oh, crud, I forget who it was. Vincente Minnelli. It, Busby Berkeley oh, helping with the right. numbers. Well, I remember the, the Busby Berkeley part. But, well, yeah. But it's... Um, it's very interesting because it just swings wildly from being kind of empowering from that point in time. It's there are a lot of black actors getting work, and there um, there are scenes in there that are really spectacular showcases of what they can do. Um, there there are fantastic ta- uh, tap dancers and singers in this movie, great comedic performers, and good lord, it's racist. It 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 has some of the most ridiculously exaggerated kind of minstrel show mm-hmm. comedy um it, it portrays a uh 
Oh, goodness, I'm going to have to try and remember a plot, and I'm very bad at that. Um, it's a husband and wife. It, Wendy, you've seen this. Uh, you might be able to help me out with this. No, but, I... <laughs> you saw it a long the, time ago. <laughs> this was at a buttonomathon, and it was the 3 a.m. slot, mm. and I tried for 20 oh. minutes. And this was back at the original Alamo. I, I fell asleep. <sighs> this was before I knew how to manage my sleep patterns. <laughs> As well as I do now. It's been a long time since I've slept through a film at Buttonumathon. Mm-hmm. I just got to say. But uh, yeah, no, this one, I and I, I mourn. I do mourn that I didn't get to see it. You should watch it. I think you'd be really interested in it. But it's uh, it's one of the Warner Brothers archive movies where it does have the warning in the front. It's mm-hmm. it's the um, this is this is a movie that was a product of its time. We know it's incredibly racist, but to lose this movie you'd also lose all the good things with it. And also the, the record of the racism that all these people of this time were experiencing. Like it's a, like, a, like the black exploitation and all of, all of these terrible things we've done. Oh, like yeah. you need to know what it was. Right. Um, the IMDB summary is a compulsive gambler dies during a shooting, mm-hmm. but he'll receive a second chance to reform himself and to make up with his worried wife. Yeah, and uh, there there is a black Satan, um, as as opposed to white Satan. There are two different Satans, but uh, specifically there is a black Satan uh, in the movie. Uh, Wait a minute, they've segregated hell? They have segregated hell. Because white <laughs> Satan can't... What? I just I have to say, in, in Caucasian Aggressive Pandas, there is a segregated heaven. Sweet. <laughs> Oh, I love you so hard, Duck. Uh, but did you? So is Panda, by the way, uh, is that a an epithet for a mixed race person? It's, I mean, not something. It's not one that I typically hear, you know. But um, um, I kind of use that as a model, being a black and white creature at the same time to represent me. Um, you know, growing up, people would call me, you know, like I, I'd hear zebra. I never really heard panda, but you know, I, but people I heard would call me Oreo, zebra. Oreo. Or, oh, I definitely have been called Oreo. Or Twinkie for Asian people oh, being interesting. yellow on the outside and white on the inside. Oh. Like I've when, never heard that one. Ooh. When you're trying to act white, it was mm-hmm. an epithet. And this was at a time when I would just use Twinkie as a generic, like you're being a dork. Cause I was like, mm. well, that's a pretty inoffensive word to call you a snack cake. But I had a friend who was part Asian and I called her Twinkie. And that's when I found out that apparently it is offensive. I'm like, <laughs> well, shit, how does, I can't find anything. Like a cookie is offensive to the wrong person. A snack cake is offensive to the wrong person. You're a bookcase. You're a bookcase, man. <laughs> yeah, don't ever call a black person's kid a monkey. Like, oh, he's such a cute little no, monkey. Oh, <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> it, it's kind of like uh, the, the slang gay from the 80s. It, mm-hmm. it, it kind of just fell out of our mouths in, in, the, in the decade of the 80s. And then at some point we went, oh, that's, that's not oh. so good. Oh yeah. I'm always, I'm always interested at how, how still how frequently people go, oh, I got gypped. Like, oh yeah. Think about that, where that what that word point. is and why you're using it in a sentence and why that's wrong. Mm-hmm. Calling a man a pussy, don't be a, such a pussy. Yeah. Oh yeah. Like like there's a lot of things that we are starting to finally get right. Mm-hmm. Like, look, you know, I understand you want to like trash talk your friends, but can we trash talk them with words that don't like put groups of people down? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Anyway. So, so cabin in the sky. So cabin in the sky. Um, some really talented people in it. Uh, Lena Horn. 
has a couple yeah. of scenes. Uh, Petunia Jackson is the wife of the uh, dead guy, and she's basically praying for his soul. She ha- so she has a very central role in the movie, and she's fascinating to watch. And Louis, Louis Armstrong, Armstrong is- shows up. Um, Butterfly McQueen's in it. So it- it's kind of a who's who of a black talent back then. Uh, Duke Ellington and his band show up. Phenomenal like tap dancers. Ruby Dandridge. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So there, you know yeah. there's some awesome stuff going on, even if there's some not awesome stuff yeah. going on. Yeah. Um, and you get to listen to Louis Armstrong. That's that's pretty sweet on its own. Yeah, absolutely. And um, <laughs> there's something very special about the insanity of some of the scenes because it, it, it goes – from the the full glory of like Busby Berkeley style choreography with horribly racist things going on. So it, uh, it, it is you know don't get it confused with uh with Wonderbar. Yeah, with Wonderbar. Yeah, I know they they kind of do kind of mash together in my head, but it, it's kind of it's kind of the same thing. You've got the all the scenes with Black Satan are absolutely bonkers. So now is that was. I'm assuming that that was based off of a stage show or a showboat kind of a show. I think it was original. I think it was mm. it, it was uh, made to be a movie, as far as I know. Yeah. In 1943, they would have been trying to cash in on the, um, you know, spectacular yeah. musical sort of... Look, they can sing and dance on screen now. Yeah. Because they... it sounds very... To me, to me, it sounds very similar to a lot of the the musicals that were that were created that would finally allow black performers to perform but they were you know they had to do it in this way to perform for white audiences as they toured around um and i know like louis louis armstrong and and a bunch of the the people of that that jazz age were kind of involved in that too so oh absolutely and uh it's it is interesting, but it, it was you know, 1943, so America was going off to war. So it was all part of that escapism trend that was happening in movies at the time. So movies that were made to take your mind off of stuff. And so here's a a flashy little musical to, to entertain you. And uh, what, How is it racist? Is it the portrayal of like you know the usual stereotypes? It, there are a lot of the usual stereotypes. Um there are, you know, most of the the black people in the movie are poor, um, poor impulse control. Well, he's um, a gambler. Well, he he is a gambler, but it, it's there. There is a priest in the movie who is more highly educated, and he's black. But by and large, like all the characters are pretty much just poor stereotypes, mm-hmm. kind of like what you see in Porgy and Bess. Okay. Yeah, which is pretty much the same era, really. Which, in there are a lot of parallels there actually, because Porgy and and Bess, when you watch it today, um, carries forward a lot of those stereotypes of you know blacks being always poor and uneducated and making bad decisions and uh, and all that. But Porgy and Bess was one of the first Broadway shows that had an all black cast and once again showcased all this black talent. Mm-hmm. So for the time it was incredibly progressive. And yet we watch it now and what we see are the kind of horrible things that got swept along with it through the ages. So yeah, very, very similar. So yeah. Hollywood, Hollywood. These are the things that you should be rebooting and doing better. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, oh, like this was this was good, except for this. Let's redo you know, not Robocop. 
Well, I have ideas about the remake of RoboCop, but that's a different episode. <laughs> All right. Well, it seems like uh, the natural thing is to pivot to uh, one of my picks, which was made in 1942, which would be Holiday Inn. Yeah. That's Bing right Crosby, in there. Bing Crosby, Fred Astaire, mm-hmm. Marjorie Reynolds, who, you know, who? <laughs> <laughs> She does a fine job in the film. It's kind of curious that she didn't have much more of a of a career other than this that, you know, like you you see her and you're like, I don't think I ever saw her in anything else. Huh. Um so Holiday Inn, the beloved the beloved holiday classic made before White Christmas, obviously, because White Christmas is in color. This is in black and white. Um, Irving Berlin's Holiday Inn. This is the movie where White Christmas, the song, first debuted. Mm-hmm. The premise being so delightfully bizarre. Like, um, yeah, let's really think about that. That wouldn't really work. Um, that there is an inn that is only open for entertainment on the holidays. So what that basically means is we ignore how they manage to make a living and not die in the in-between times. But every holiday, we get to watch them do a great big number, <laughs> right? A great big uh, yeah. short float, flow show, flow show, oh God. Floor show. <laughs> um, so, and then this is This is the Holiday Inn that the Snoop Dogg song is based off of, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> 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 and, I, you know, they're both fighting over the same woman. But the reason I would why- like to note that Marjorie Reynolds was uh, in – Ministry of Fear, which is a fantastic film noir. Anyway. <clears throat> yeah. Just saying. Okay. Yeah. I know she did other things, but she's not an actress that you're like, her, she was in everything. You're right. like, oh, I don't know about her. So uh, in terms of why this is problematic, there is the very famous reason, which is that, yes, Bing Crosby and his love interest, Marjorie Reynolds, do a blackface number oh, for, for Lincoln's birthday. <laughs> I forgot about that part. For Lincoln's birthday? Oh, God. Well, yeah, because it's about <laughs> celebrating how, I shit you not, this is a direct quote. Guess who it was set the darkie free? Oh, God. Uh, Abraham. Abraham. So it's celebrating Abraham Lincoln and how, how he was so wonderful for setting the darkie free. God. They uh. say that. She comes out in a picking any outfit like oh. not just blackface but with the hair and braids all like wired up yeah and this pantaloon sort of thing and he's all like bing crosby is all uncle tom mm-hmm. right with his cane and he's all like bruh, 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 I'm, I'm an old black man go tell you chillins about why we all love abraham lincoln it's really oh and oh the whole chorus is also like the females are in these Southern Belle outfits with these ridiculous curl back bonnets, also in blackface. So, like, it looks like a racist cartoon happening, but it's a good dance number. God, <laughs> and it's a, it's amazing how often that that kind of thing was was commonplace and yeah. like well accepted. But there's another reason why it's also awful. Okay, I gotta hear it. Oh. Because Bing Crosby has a servant who is a black woman with two small children, and her name is Mamie. Mm. And the the stock servant character yeah. that you saw in 
all of those movies. Yes, and technically she's a servant, but oh my God, is she still a member of the household, mm-hmm. to use a euphemism, right? Right. Like she... She does, and she does a little bit of the magical Negro thing where she, she gives him a stern talking to at a moment of truth about, you know, you're, you're a fool, but she's got the accent. She's, you know, she's the cook. She's the housekeeper. Mm-hmm. She's the mother figure. It's, I mean, on the one hand, it's, um, cause it's Louise Beavers. You'll recognize her mm-hmm. as a black act. Like she's more recognizable than Marjorie Reynolds. You'll be like yeah. her. That's the black actress who played all these roles in these films. Mm-hmm. But yeah, Mamie, Mamie. Yeah. And she gets to sing one of the verses. Cause she, she does sing the word darky as well to her children. Oh God. Yeah. It, wow. it, I mean, it, it gives me flashbacks, first of all, to Syncopation, which we saw at Butnumathon this year, which uh, also had pretty mm-hmm. much that same character serving one of the households. Why do they show so many racist movies at Butnumathon? <laughs> well, there, there's a reason, and it's because Harry likes digging out these movies that don't get shown anymore because they have these outdated references in them. So a lot of film companies, I mean, it's getting better now. It was more important back 16 and 17 years ago when they first started Butnumathon. But these movies tend to just sit around in the vaults and nobody watches them anymore just because it's like, oh, that's really racist. We can't show that on TCM right now. So he, you know, he has just this encyclopedia in his brain of movie knowledge. So he... There's always one film that he digs out of the vaults for us every year. It's like, nobody's seen this in a long time. And this is why. But it's interesting for other reasons. So here it is. I mean, that's where we saw Cabin in the Sky. We saw White Dog. Mm -hmm. Um, We see lots of exploitation films. Mm -hmm. And it's because as a cinephile, you want to know the good and the bad of this thing that you love, these movies Mm -hmm. that you love. Like you should go back and if you truly love films, you need to also watch these films because in a lot of ways you can see artistry in them. And it's it's good to remind yourself where you came from. Oh, by the way, the costumes in Holiday Inn, Edith Head. Yes, of course. (laughs) And some of the gowns are just like, Gowny, gown, 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 gown. So <laughs> gowny. Uh, let's see, where should we move from here? Let's jump Let's jump a little bit into the future. We've Woo-hoo! spent a lot of time in the 40s. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm going to talk about The Toy. <laughs> starring Richard Pryor. Yeah, I remember this coming out in the 80s. Um, it was which the 80s, was, right? Which came out in the in the 80s. I remember yeah. seeing it as a kid. I actually, I actually really enjoyed this movie. <laughs> um, 1982. But it wow. is a it is a film where uh, a child who's basically uh, granted to be able to to do and buy whatever he wants walks into a store and tells the people in the store that work for his father that he wants to purchase the black man that he finds messing around in the toy shop, <laughs> um, and so they do what they were supposed to do and they buy him whatever he wants and they pay Richard Pryor to go home to his house and be his black man toy, which, um, you know, has hugely crazy, you know, implications for this young white child to be owning a black man. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think it deals, you know, even though it'll pop up on like racist movie lists. Oh God. Yeah. um, With with it being Richard Pryor, it's like, no, that's 
probably definitely more satire. And I, it, I think it, I think it really is. I mean, he and the little boy eventually go out and throw mud pies at the clan. So like, <laughs> I mean, I think it, I think it, and, and his wife is like an adamant advocator for, for black rights. And it's like, you know, against him the whole time. Like, why are you going to go live with this little boy? You know, whose name is master Bates. I just want to point out. <laughs> oh God. Um, <laughs> um well, it's, it's kind of like how you wouldn't call Blazing Saddles racist. Right, it's right. firmly satire. It's like if Richard Pryor, which by the way, he had to have been like a writer on it. Yeah? I, I would think so. I presume so. he would. In no, 1982? He wasn't? credited with Carol Sobieski and Francis Weber. Oh. Interesting. But if Richard Pryor si- signed on, it had to have been, I bet it was written for him as a vehicle. Oh, probably. Like, here's a thing we can do. Would you be down with that? It, it's during that era of the 80s where there were a lot of really great race satires. Because yeah. this was the same year of uh, Trading Places. Oh, yeah. I think it's absolutely oh, yeah. freaking brilliant. Also, Dan Aykroyd in blackface. Dan Aykroyd in blackface. Oh, God. Trading Places. And Al Franken. And Al Franken. <laughs> <laughs> you Our mean Senator. Senator Al Franken? Al Franken. Um, thrown out in a blog as potential vice presidential candidate, which let's think about President Al Franken for a little bit. I'm on board. Right? Honestly. Right? Really <laughs> so yeah, I think the toy needs to be brought the, back. The toy, I, the toy is a movie it? I like I the toy is a movie I definitely recommend taking a look at. It's been a mm-hmm. couple of years since I watched it, but um um, well, it's Richard comedi- Donner directed. it's I mean, it's it's so well performed, and I think mm-hmm. the dynamics between Master Bates and <laughs> uh, uh, Jack Brown, who's played by Richard Pryor, and uh, the, oh my God, the father. The, f- the father is Jackie Gleason, yeah, whose Jack- name oh, is Oh God, yeah. his, his name is U.S. Bates. Yeah, like. And, every, and everybody's Southern, so they the all highest. call him U.S., and he gets really mad. <laughs> <laughs> Except at the end, he decides that Richard Pryor is the one person who's allowed to call him U.S. Banks. The wife is <laughs> Fancy Bates. Like, yeah, this is this is definitely broad satire. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I feel like... Uh, Trading Places is fondly remembered still these days. Yeah, I mean, tra- Trading Places is one of my favorite movies yeah, of all time. And, but the toy seems to not have carried forward. And I think it's, I think it's because the concept is so extreme. Mm-hmm. Hey, this kid owns a black person. Like, it's a little <laughs> bit more extreme than what happens if we switch these two people around. Mm-hmm. Well, and honestly, Richard Pryor isn't remembered as a good actor. Which is, unf- and I blame the Superman franchise for that. Yeah, but I mean, he did a lot of film comedies, Mm -hmm. but for the most part, he is forgotten and they are just surprised. Well, and it's funny because he did so many movies with with Gene Wilder that were, Mm -hmm. you know, really top notch comedic films. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm going to go back. I'm going to go back to uh, to the 1950s because I want to talk about The King and I a little bit. Okay, sounds good. Back in time. So this is (laughs) 1956. this is interestingly a movie that uh, still gets pinged for being racist. Mm-hmm. Although it's like, mm, well, uh, yeah, uh, like I give it a lot of pass because, well, it was a 1950s movie being made about things in the what eight 
late 1800s? I think when so. When is it set? There were hoop skirts involved. Yeah. Yeah. Like gigantic hoop skirts. Mm-hmm. And a woman talking about her personal space with the, the hoop skirt around her. Yeah. And so on the one hand, it's oddly feminist because she's like, no, this is, I'm, I'm a woman alone. I've come to teach her children, mm-hmm. but you will you will agree to the contract and you will know I am not your slave. I am not one of your wives. I am an employee. So it's kind of weirdly feminist, but on the other hand, you know, like, I don't know how racist it is to <laughs> well, have. Well, you have Yule Brenner in yellow face. Yeah. That's, I think that's the biggest, Yeah, the biggest glaring issue <laughs> but is, like, is the dude in the, in the, in the face paint. Yeah. Yeah. Well, is he painted though? Oh, yeah. He's a little painted. I, he's Russian. He's he's really pale. Well, at least he's <laughs> ethnic. <laughs> Wait. I don't know if that counts. <laughs> he has an accent. That doesn't necessarily mean he's ethnic. <laughs> well, he looks ethnic at least. I'll give him that. I, okay, because I... But, like, okay, he's also, problemar- to- he's also problematic in the Ten Commandments. We'll just lay that one out there, too. Because he sure ain't Egyptian. He's great, but he sure ain't Egyptian. He was half Swiss. He sometimes claimed to be half Swiss, half Japanese. Okay, he was actually Russian, I told you. Swiss, German. He never really told the truth about his own past. <laughs> you put but, cool um, mayo and milk in a blender, it still comes out white. It's really, it's really white, Wendy. <laughs> okay, I'm just saying, in at least, like, this is 1956. They have an excuse. What's gods of Egypt's excuse? What's, what's Exodus's excuse? No, I'm not excuse? giving gods of Egypt a pass either. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> at least Jules Brenner looks ethnic, right? <laughs> Now that said, if we're gonna complete what he God. You're not helping, Wendy. I just saw Gods of Egypt where the most ethnic looking person was Gerald Butler. Gerard Butler. Gerard. So you know, at least you'll Brenner like maybe like you're like, well, he doesn't look you know, at least he doesn't put, look they, like but at Jewish least white put, guy at least they down the put makeup on Gerard Butler and then say to try to justify. <laughs> yeah. Well, and also you have a Hispanic playing a tie because Rita Moreno. That's true. That's and then true. you have you have the offensive interpretation of Thai culture. Yeah, that's true. Of, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, it, it, Burmese. That, it would be Burmese culture, yeah. although that's now Myanmar. Mm-hmm. But I suppose you do have the the white protagonist kind of teaching them mm-hmm. a yeah, better way white. to live. I can totally yeah. see why that would. Yeah, be, uh, you guys are backward. Here is the cultured yeah. way to to this the white this, savior. Yeah, the white savior comes in, teaches them the ways of civilization, and then they can join the modern world. And I think it's even worse than than some white savior movies mm-hmm. in the in the fact that she's not just saving them she's actually telling them that their whole way of existing is incorrect right oh yes so part of why i wanted to bring it up is first off just so i could diss gods and gods of egypt a little bit more <laughs> <laughs> like yul brenner is fucking russian and he looks more ethnic than jeffrey rush as raw okay <laughs> That's still funny. <laughs> I know it's never and then not funny. What was the funny. Christian Bale movie that, uh, that was Exodus, Exodus, Gods and Kings? That one's Exodus, atrocious. yeah, because Christian Bale is Moses, you know, <laughs> the Jew. <laughs> the 
Middle Eastern Jew. Oh, God, that that movie was awful. But that's okay, because his stepmom was Sigourney Weaver. But at least she had dark hair, right? They're, like, these movies hey. get so terrible that you're like, well, at least they're brunette. Like, well, and have you, heard the, have you heard the now famous quote of Ridley Scott of why he did casting the way he did? He said, he said, I had to do it that way because no one will go see a movie if I cast Mohammed so-and-so from such-and-such. <sighs> was his literal explanation yeah, of why I, he cast the people that he did. And I'm then somebody was like, it. I don't think it's racism. I think it's greed. And I'm like, well, it's both. It's systemic racism, which leads you to believe that you can't make a movie if you put brown people in it. So you never put brown people in a movie, so they never get to be a big enough name to headline a movie. So vicious circle. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's why Fast and Furious has been doing so poorly at the box yeah, office. I know. <laughs> ding, 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 ding. <laughs> it's like when they used to talk about how a female-led movie, nobody will go watch it, and then like... Hunger Games, Gravity, and Frozen came out and mm-hmm. destroyed that argument for good. But you can't. But you can't sell little boys those toys, though. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, so the king and I. I did also want to bring up. There's also the classic Small House of Uncle Thomas. So not only do you have Yellowface, you have Yellowface interpreting black culture. Oh like God, that's American right. Slavery. <laughs> oh God, I erased that from my brain. Run, Eliza, run! Oh run no, run from Uncle Tom. Run from Wicked Simon. Oh no, yeah, I'm yeah. I'm horrified anew. <laughs> staged by um, Jerome Robbins. Jerome Robbins <laughs> staged that fa- famously staged the original version, which is what's in the movie, which is what everybody now does. Because right. if you don't do it that way, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> it's true. Like that's. Part of why people go to see the show, they they want to see that sequence. They want to see it the way it's always done because it's so cool. Well, and it there is. Are, it's, there are worse people to emulate than Jerome, Jerome Robbins, really. Yeah, I mean, it really is brilliantly staged. The problem I have, part of why I wanted to bring it up is, so here we have this movie, this story about a white savior and all of the cascading problems of the story and the casting, this is one of the most popular musicals still in community theater. Mm-hmm. And it still it gets is. revived on Broadway frequently too. <laughs> it's like, um, h- hello? At least these days on Broadway, they make an effort to cast, you know, appropriately. But uh, yeah, your local community theater doesn't have that option. So think about that for a little bit. <laughs> you have the same issues with West Side Story though too, right? With... Um, know, yeah, actually, I do. Yeah, there, yeah, there are a lot. There's a lot of cultural pro- appropriation in that. There's, um, oh goodness, now I'm gonna go blank. I was just thinking of something else. But West Side Story oh, doesn't Annie get, get done your as. Gun. Oh, <gasps> Annie, get your gun and West Side Story don't get done as much because they are a lot. Like Annie, get your gun doesn't get done as much because it's much more blatant with mm-hmm. the Indian stuff. At least you also, could just take out the Indian stuff. Like, oh, there's yeah, a scene we can just get up and get rid of because it serves sexist, nothing. The sexist stuff is starting to get harder to sell to them. Yeah, that's true. The reason West Side Story doesn't get as much get done as much on the community stage, although it still gets done at higher levels, is because um, it's so hard. It's just so hard to do dance wise. Yeah, you 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 need to have good dancers to do the show. Yeah, it's like it's you a don't tricky see show. cats done because 
Like, what's the point of watching Cats with a bunch of non-dancers? <laughs> you don't go see Cats for the music. Oh, no, God, no. No. Anyway, so and- I did want to bring up, like, The King and I and how I'm fascinated by, for some reason, this is just so beloved in our culture that we keep doing it. That said, I don't care how much yellow face he has on. I still love Yul Brynner so much. Well, you can you can good. love Yul Brenner. I I won't yeah. I won't begrudge you that, but but he should he should get some uh, makeup remover. Is all I'm saying. <laughs> I well, s- I've told Melissa this. I saw him live on stage in the role in his last tour before he died, and he was an amazing performer. Performer. It's just a crying shame that he was best known for yellow. Well, face. I mean, Al Jolson was an amazing performer too. True. But watching the jazz singer is hard. <laughs> yes, it's true. <laughs> It's true. Speaking about white saviors, let's go into The Man Who Would Be King, which um, I actually think is a fantastic movie. And I kind of wanted to bring it up like uh, Duck was bringing up the toy because I think it's an interesting subversion of the trope because... Uh, the Man Who Would Be King, if you know your Rudyard Kipling, is a is a story by Kipling about uh, two British army men who decide to go off and become kings. So they traipse off into the wilds of India, into the the uncivil, more uncivilized parts, and they decide to present themselves as gods to one of the local cultures. And uh, they continue their con for as long as possible. And, you know, of course, it it ends like a Rudyard Kipling story. So the plot is literally the white savior trope being exploited by these two characters. And yet the the movie that was made from it, it was uh, made in the early 80s. And it is a phenomenal film that nobody seems to remember these days. Beautifully shot. Uh, it stars Sean Connery and Michael Caine. Michael, Michael Caine. Caine. Christopher Plummer as well. And Christopher Plummer. And it's, uh, first of all, charming because it's uh, Sean Connery and Michael Caine having misadventures as they travel across India. But as it gets to the culture that they're trying to subvert, the movie gets kind of dark. And uh, they start... The Michael Caine's character starts kind of questioning what they're doing, and there's infighting between the two men, and it is a very interesting movie, and I feel like far too few people have seen it these days. Okay. It was made in 75. Was it 75? Really? Yeah. Yeah. But it is John 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 Houston, Houston. directed Mm -hmm. and written. Yeah. Very, very good. Very good. So what happens after they... They emulate, like, when they try to convince people that they're their god. They, basically, uh, Sean Connery sets himself up. I can't remember how it's decided, but Sean Connery presents himself as being the god. And uh, uh, Michael Caine is his assistant helper or, you know, second in command, whatever. And, you know, first of all, Michael Caine's kind of like, I thought this was two of us doing this. And Connery's character gets greedier and greedier with what he wants from the culture that they've essentially taken over. And eventually he wants to marry one of the uh, young women. And the uh, this is a spoiler. The way it all comes down is, well, he is going to wed this, you know, quote, mortal woman. She is so terrified of being married to a god she bites him and draws blood 
and it all comes crashing down. <laughs> In a lot of ways, it kind of reminds me of a true story. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if it might be inspired um, by the story of Captain Cook. Oh, um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, You know, who... You know, his men eventually came to came upon Hawaii mm-hmm. and he was like, yeah, and they mistook them for being gods and they mm-hmm. really took advantage of that. And then eventually they realized that they weren't gods and they beat Captain Cook to death in the surf yeah. um, after they had been sleeping with their women and like taking their supplies. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the ultimate crime was that they stole a boat from the people there. And yeah, it didn't go down well, but it sounds like a very similar like... And and knowing Kipling, it's very possible he took that as inspiration Mm -hmm. for the story. Yeah, and uh, speaking of Kipling, uh, Gunga Dean. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. Which we just saw last year's But None of Them. Yeah, oh boy. Uh, With Sam Jaffe in blackface as a low-cased Indian man. So uh, I believe it's Duck's turn. It's my turn. All right, let's talk about my man, Quentin Tarantino. Yeah! Quentin Tarantino is a director who very, very frequently comes under fire um, for the way he uses black characters and the way Mm -hmm. he writes black language um, in his films. Um, Spike Lee is notorious for being very opposed for, for the way that Quentin Tarantino would direct a movie like Jackie Brown. Right. In my mind, I don't I don't have any issue with Quentin Tarantino going there. I think I I think he's trying to give his characters kind of a certain quality, a certain vernacular. He's emulating kind of a lot of the African-American based films of the 70s. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think really formulates a lot of his dialogue style. You know, he does use the N-word a lot. But it, it doesn't – I don't feel like it's used inappropriately. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think it's used quite as much of a sh- shock tool as some people might think. And Spike Lee is an interesting character in in his opinions of that in a lot of regards. You know, I think it's, I think it's funny. Even though I have a love-hate relationship with Spike Lee's movies, um, some of them I really love and some of them I, I don't. Boy, that would um, be an interesting episode to do with you. <laughs> I'm going to write that down. I want you back, man. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But uh, – you know, this is this is this is a man who says, you know, Quentin Tarantino doesn't have the right to make Jackie Brown because mm-hmm. he's not because he's not a black director slash writer. Mm-hmm. Yet he redirects Old Boy. Yeah. At the same time, it's like, yeah. well, yeah. you've now completely taken another culture's movie mm-hmm. and reappropriated it into a completely different culture. I, you Ooh. know, um, yeah, it kind of takes his credibility and stock in that argument away in in a lot of aspects but i feel like everybody should be able to try to write stories for everyone i mean if we didn't have white people writing black characters we would see so few black characters it wouldn't even it it wouldn't even be funny well yeah um i think it's really important to you know also hire actors you know directors and writers of color as well and make sure that their voices are represented Mm -hmm. um but they should also be able to be not only be limited to tell black stories or asian stories you know or native american stories they should Mm -hmm. be able to tell you know stories about anybody as long as they're as long as they have truth and are interesting i think yeah i feel like as long as they're authentic and i'm i'm sorry i feel like if sam jackson is willing to speak your dialogue that you're probably doing okay i don't feel like samuel jackson would (laughs) sign up 
for something. Yes and no. Because <laughs> Samuel L. Jackson has not said no to very many things. That's very true. He's he's kind of uh, our version of Michael Caine, let's let's be honest. I mean I mean he's pretty much been like, if somebody's gonna pay me to do it, I'm gonna do it. Well like, yeah, absolutely you know, true. And that which is why he's he's made like eighty or plus movies in the last 20 mm-hmm. years and um, and and i mean uh, tarantino's kind of in the same place with rules for women too because he's not a woman obviously yeah. but he has put some really great female characters on the screen jackie brown or uh the bride from kill bill and you know even tiny all roles. of the women in kill bill yeah well pretty much all the women in all of his movies like even in pulp fiction the the cab driver esmeralda she's on the screen for one scene but you remember that character so it's tarantino has the talent to write memorable roles for people and he has the foresight to cast fairly diverse actors tarantino i mean sometimes he kind of gets into i feel like racial hot water but I think he's kind of playing with those tropes as well. I, I agree. Like, and, and I feel like he's earned the space to do that sort of playing. Whereas, you know, if, if somebody wasn't as talented a director and wasn't as talented a writer, uh, they wouldn't get away with nearly as much. And I think I, th- I think a lot of it really has to come with intention and why it's there yeah. and how it's used, you know. Um, and I can I can see why it might get some people's feathers ruffled, but I approve. I approve. I I, I think he he's created a lot of really interesting roles for a lot of different kinds of people. And mm-hmm. um, he wants to write me into something. I'll probably do. Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> your your career would just explode. Right. He's revived so many careers. Really, well, and I don't. I he feels so knowledgeable about like exploitation films that when he writes one himself it doesn't feel like appropriation it feels right. like it like he's, like he's coming from it. a place of love and he's trying to make it authentic yeah absolutely he he made kill bill because he loves kung fu movies uh, he made jackie brown because he loves black exploitation movies he love he he made he loves uh, old Lake. westerns, so he, he makes lo- like the hateful lay and Django and Django Unchained, Unchained. which is a mashup. And yet he still puts a modern. He still can't help but put a modern sensibility on it because, like hateful Eight, you've got Jennifer Jason Lee, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and then you've got the Samuel L. Jackson character in hateful Eight, where yes, he is still a black man in that time with all that that means, but the character is not written in any way limited the way. Right. He that character would have been written previously. It is a fully fledged character. Or, or same with uh, Django Unchained, where you have the Jamie Foxx character as mm-hmm. being a very uh, actualized black man in an incredibly racist time period. And I mean, it's kind of this heightened reality where it's not necessarily believable as something that actually might have happened back then. But it, it's kind of combining with our sensibilities of today and playing with what we know racism was at the time and there's kind of this cultural zeitgeist that he's trying to work out in Django Unchained and in Inglorious Bastards yeah. because you literally get to kill Hitler 
in Inglorious Bastards. I um I was actually kind of uh, really pleased when just when I heard about what the Hateful Eight was about because oh, yeah. I had worried that that Quentin Tarantino might have been falling into this line where he's like, I made a movie where the you know the Jews killed a shit ton of Nazis and people loved it, and then I made a I made a movie about a, a slave who comes back and kills a shit ton of slave owners. I was like, I hope we're just not going to kill like the you know yeah. as as happy as I am to see slave owners die, you know. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I, I didn't want him to feel like that was the only movie he could make. Yeah. And, he, and it's not. So, yeah. which is hey, awesome. Hateful Eight is an Agatha Christie movie, essentially. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've, I've got a good one to launch off of uh, with Cloud Atlas because talking about cultural appropriation. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, um, a little less successful than Jackie Brown was Cloud Atlas, which I think is a fascinating movie. It's a really interesting flick. But it is a mess. It is yeah, a this, really messy. It's a glorious, wonderful, ambitious mess. I kind of love it. It's yeah. kind of beautiful. And yet it is, it's not a film that I'm like, hey, this is good. I'm like, you should watch Cloud Atlas. I really like it. Try to ignore how it doesn't actually work. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, and I yeah. think because it doesn't actually work, and yet, like, it doesn't come together. But all of the pieces are so terrific. Mm-hmm. I mean, and I think the I think the really big issue in Cloud Atlas is the the Asian makeup. Oh God! You know, like I think yeah. I think it was a really interesting experiment to have people playing multiple different races, you know, mm-hmm. and across different. T- but like the Asian makeup. Did was not good enough, and mm-hmm. people looked scary and un- unauthentic. And they also put Halle Berry in white makeup. No, I know, well, yeah. but it wasn't nearly as scary. And they put Hugo Weaving <laughs> in drag, so uh, like, which, like which I'm all for. Honestly, the the idea of doing that doesn't really bother me. I it just if you're going to go there, it has to be done really, really well. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think Cloud Atlas is a really interesting movie. I highly recommend. Anybody well, yeah, go but see it. So it got dinged for being racist because you have white actors playing Asians. You have you have a you're making a black actress be in white well, face. And, and historically and it's, like, it, it's well, been a it's a historical issue. Except that that's the whole point of the movie is right. that mm-hmm. through time they will be all of these different things, which the whole point is to play up the fact that therefore it's the soul that truly matters. Does it matter what form the outside is in? No. And I think no. that's so it I, doesn't matter that she's white or black or Asian or male or female. It's the same soul. And I think the fact that they have everybody playing cross race really Indeed. kind of and, and that's like part of what the movie is about thematically, I think takes it beyond the it being wrong. Yeah. You know? And and also that at some point they are playing their own race right. in the movie. So it's they're not in makeup a hundred percent of the time. They're they're switching around. But I can I can definitely understand why somebody might react very strongly to seeing somebody do that. Like yeah. like systematically and historically dressing well, up as the, another racist mm-hmm. typically well, not something that's what's okay what's the answer for that story then like you don't want to cast a different actor in the role and i well, think i i don't think that they should change the way they went a, pro, uh, across it except no. for maybe getting a couple of better makeup people personally <laughs> well well here's the thing here's the thing here's the thing i think the problem might not even be the makeup it's the the story as they were moving into those scenes was not compelling enough to distract us from the fact that the makeup 
didn't mm-hmm. look right. It, it kind of had this uncanny valley thing going yeah, for it. Yeah, it really did. So if the, if the story had engaged us a little bit better, we would not give a shit. If the movie held together better, if it came together in a, in a glorious supernova of awesome like The Matrix did, um, we would not care about the ghost of cultural appropriation. It would have all worked. Whereas uh, since it is kind of a mess of the movie and you get these wonderful scenes that don't quite fit together, that allows us to step back and nitpick. So I think, I think that might actually be the bigger problem. I with, think with, with just with the movie. I yeah. think I think that Cloud Atlas was a really good launching point for Sense Eight. I agree. You know, I think Sense Eight is working fantastically mm-hmm. on Netflix. Um, I and it, tried to watch the first episode, and I it did not work for me. But people keep telling me it was really good. <laughs> I thought it was really good. I mm-hmm. I highly I highly recommend it. But, but the also, problem is that the Wachowski of the Wachowskis have consistently missed. Maybe in a longer form, like a series, they can finally get their ideas out more coherently. But it's been a long time since they've made a movie that I'm like, good job, guys. Well, you know, they've both been kind of going through transitions lately. Wait, what's the other one been doing? They've, they've, they're, they're both, both transitioned trans. now. They're both trans yeah. now? They're both trans. Yeah. I hadn't heard that. Yeah, Andy oh. just announced. Uh, God, it must have been just a couple weeks. Yeah, it was ago. just a couple. Weeks. And I think, yeah, unfortunately, I, I think she that. was outed. I don't think she had intended to come out yet. Yeah, I, I, I'm very sorry. But. I just dead named uh, Wachowski's sister. Uh, <laughs> yeah, she came out a couple weeks ago, and uh, was it the National Enquirer was mm-hmm. threatening to make it public, and and she got ahead of the story, and it's like I wasn't ready to do this, but I want to get ahead of the press. And so now we have well, the Wachowski good sister, for her. sisters. That's, yeah, I mean that's awesome. I hope that once they finally like get their their entire selves sorted out, they can be more successful with clarity in their movies. Well, yeah. I think they're already succeeding on Netflix, so they can just continue mm-hmm. to do that. Oh yeah. Well, and, then maybe that's the form they need. Yeah, I think and- I do think that their eyes are bigger than their stomachs. Like <laughs> they. They want to tell really huge stories, yeah, and then it becomes a mess when they try to bring like, it all fit together. It all in, you know what? I'd rather have their ambition than have it all be perfect. I mean, Honestly, I'd rather much... watch uh, an imperfect mess like Cloud Atlas than watch something mediocre that never even tried. Well, so, I, for as yeah. much as I mock Jupiter Ascending, I was waiting I had... for the name to come out. <laughs> I had a great time watching it, and Gods of Egypt could not hold a candle to the glorious mess that was Jupiter ascending. Like, at least if you're going to be over-the-top ridiculous, go for it. Like, yes, get Eddie Remain doing whatever the hell he was doing in that movie. I am an actor! Should we jump to another movie? Let's move it. Let's move it. Wendy, Wendy. Well, I will in the same vein. Let's bring up Stargate. Let's Stargate. The uh, the original, the original movie, not the, not the series. Although the the series does actually have a lot to recommend it. Yeah, Um, Uh, yeah, never watched it. Stargate back when James Spader was a thing. Yeah, yeah, and oh, back when Kurt Russell was in his weird, his weird place, like where he was humorless. Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. Um, This was 1994. The reason why, like, I find myself sort of fascinated racially with Stargate is, unlike, unlike Gods of Egypt, the people playing Egyptians are mostly brown. Yeah, that's true. Mm -hmm. Like, Mm -hmm. Jay Davidson was 
actually of mixed race. Mm-hmm. And uh, oh, what's her toes? Who played the wife? I feel like even the the less well known, like Shaori, the girl he likes. Yeah, um, I'm looking it up right now. Um, looks like she's Jewish, so she's at least Middle Eastern because it's Mili Avital that played her. Mili Avital. In Tel Aviv, she's Israeli. So, like, but at least the characters who are playing the brown people are either brown or... Just a some- step up. They're not the right brown, but they're but they're at least pigmented. Just <laughs> yes, that's up. true. It's true. Well, I'm, Egyptian to Middle East is at, at least... That's pretty close geographically, right? There And that... That area, yeah. to to be fair, is kind of a melting pot of cultures, but... And you do get Juman Hansu in there as Horus, right? I'm all for that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's... Also, what happened to... Whatever happened to Jay Davidson? There wasn't actually a lot of skill in there as an actor. But a very guys. interesting presence in film, I think. Yeah. Very interesting. Yes. Yes. I, I will agree. <laughs> So on the one hand, like the people playing Egyptians are actually brown, but on the other hand, you have your magical, you have your white savior, mm-hmm. like literally coming to a whole planet of brown people, and the white guy comes in and is like, "I can solve everything for you." Yeah. Uh, uh. So, like on the one hand, I'm like, "Hey, look at this! This like the guy playing Ra is actually brown. Yay!" Um, but he's super he's, evil. <laughs> but he's evil. But he's evil. And then there's the other brown people who are super needy and need somebody to save them. Oh, wait. <laughs> mm, yeah. Yeah. And yeah. then, like, you know, kind of like you're near in the man's who would, men who would be king, you have... You know, like this culture that are like are like, oh, you're here. We'll offer you our daughters. And James Spader's like, all sure. right, don't want to make you mad. So, <laughs> hey, screw in the natives. Because uh, James Spader, James Spader up until recently would like never make a movie where he didn't get to stick his penis in something. No, at least true. thematically. Um, well, he falls I was like, in he love even with gets her. laid in Stargate. Like, <laughs> it, yeah, and and he was the most nebbishy of nebbishy in Stargate. Oh, yeah. oh but my God. He, but guys, he fell in love with her even though they don't speak the same language and he only knew her one night. Guys, it's real love. Yeah. Uh, this is not getting better. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, who's next? I'll, I'll, I'll grab one because I have an extra movie on my list. So um, I'll just really quickly... Go into King Kong. King Kong. This is this is the Peter Jackson King this Kong. This is the Peter Jackson King Kong. Although uh, the original King Kong kind of has its share of of Wait, racism yeah. as well. As Melissa summarized it in the spreadsheet, scary, <laughs> evil, ethnic natives. Yes, it's true. I think I might have actually put that one down. One of us did. Right? Yeah. Scary, <laughs> evil, ethnic natives. Because I love it. It it has been actually. I caught it on uh, TV. Not too long ago, I was sitting in Travail, which is just a couple blocks away, and uh, they, they were playing the both the Peter Jackson King Kong and the 1976 Dino De Laurentiis King Kong. Oh, boy. Oh, <laughs> Deborah Winger. Oh, that Wait, was- Wait, what? No, that was Faye Dunaway. That was yeah, Faye Dunaway. Yeah, Faye Dunaway. I'm like, that's not- sorry. What? Sorry, no, it's, sorry. It's okay. Sorry. It's, it's it okay. left out of my mouth. I knew it wasn't right when it just tumbled out there. But anyway, King Kong. <laughs> when my Kong die, everybody cries. 
Anyway, so King Kong just as a storyline is kind of problematic. Well, a lot problematic because, you know, the white people come to the the island. There are native brown people there worshipping the, the giant ape god. And the white people go, hey, giant ape god, let's take it to Broadway. Yeah. And they, they take, you know, they just overrun the culture and they take the, the giant ape to New York. And of course, uh, giant ape breaks everything. But the, the Peter Jackson King Kong, you'd think we'd get, you know, closer and closer to being a little bit more, you know, racially sensitive as these versions of King Kong move forward in time. And yet somehow Peter Jackson makes it worse because the, the natives in the latest King Kong are like, awful yeah, <laughs> like they're, they're not just they're they're not just black they're, they're other they're they are alien monsters and and that that's just really uncomfortable i mean and i know what he was going for because uh i i followed the production diaries uh online because when he does a movie or at least when he was at the time he was doing like once a week he'd put like a little mini documentary online it's like okay here's how the plant department you know populates a set with plants boom and there and it was like a, a film production in a box it was really great but i remember him talking about his concept for skull island and he was talking about you know the the concept of skull island is that it's it's filled with things that are recognizable but not quite right. So the the birds are unnaturally large and creepy looking. And of course, the bugs are <laughs> fucking terrible and you know giant. Oh God! Flashback. Yeah. The, oh, the 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 uh, <laughs> the pit. Flashback. No. Oh, no. God, don't say the it. Pit. No. And and of you course you recognize the, a dinosaur, but you don't under. But it's not yeah. quite right because it can't outrun Jack Black. Yeah, you know. and, and the, <laughs> it's got kind of it's kind of like the the snaggle toothed sort of Tyrannosaurus Rex, not you know your proper upright uh, museum version of Tyrannosaurus Rex. But it also apparently applies to the natives who live there. So yeah. Yeah, and and of and of course, you know, you've got the uh, King Kong's probably a parallel for some sort of race of racism thing, and you know, you've got the oh, blonde gee, a woman, giant, and just, a giant yeah. monkey who wants to rape a white woman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It it's just yeah. I feel like that's obvious. Yeah, if it's obvious enough for me to pick up on it, it's obvious. <laughs> <laughs> well, everybody wants white women, Melissa. Like we we seriously are a commodity. I might have to sell you for a little bit of extra cash if that's okay. Clearly, I haven't leveraged this enough in my life. <laughs> but anyway, uh, I will just say that the Peter Jackson King Kong is not without merit because it gave me dinosaurs on trapeze. And for that, I am forever thankful. <laughs> I will well, just say that. I, I love... Um, Adrian uh, Brody. It, Adrian Brody's going to... Who's the actress? It's Emily... No, uh, Naomi no, Watts. Na- uh, Naomi Watts. Watts. Na- no, I really, really like her in that, and I like the relationship they build between her and Kong very much. Yeah, I do enjoy that, and I and and Kong is great because it's Andy Serkis uh, wearing ping pong balls, and he's always great when he's wearing ping pong balls. Yeah, I think he's... the movie. I think the movie looked pretty. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's I... overblown as hell. Oh it's... my god, it... get off this island already! <laughs> like, I how don't... long are they gonna fight those bugs? I really don't want to watch him get eaten by. A, oh my god! <laughs> you know what? You could have just implied that. I didn't. Oh yeah, yeah. I it just everything just seems so. Just seems so 
drawn out really like, oh yeah it, it's i was way it's, overdone the it's word you're looking for is masturbatory wow. yeah 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 it, yep. it, it is peter jackson and his dream project with a bazillion dollars backing him and nobody to tell him no and i feel like after making lord of the rings he was entitled to that which is fine by me and, and hey i'm gonna give him this at least he pulled off a better film than Lucas in the exact same situation. Speaking of. Speaking of George Lucas. The Phantom Menace. Yes. <laughs> what a racial clusterfuck this movie oh, was. God. I mean, you have, I'm just going to go through real quickly. We have, you know, Watto. The Jewish. Who's selling his white merchant. slaves. Yeah. The Jewish kind of. You have the Trade Federation who are these like really fidgety, very Asianly like portrayed aliens of of ill repute. Mm-hmm. And then you have Jar Jar oh, God. Binks. Thank thank goodness for Jar Jar Binks, because he gives me comedy fodder for the rest of my life. <laughs> <laughs> but holy crap, what the hell were they thinking? And you know, there's there's just something wrong when you don't have somebody to say, hey, I don't know if you recognize this. I know you thought it would be cool if this character talked in a pigeon language, but it sounds super Uncle Remus from the song. This, you know, like, oh God, you know, like, yeah. like it's, it's, Misa it's bad. Wa- you know? Misa wanna know? Really? Uh, Misa like, wanna die. Although, I, I know although, you were trying to pull a Gungadin. in. Yes, yes, Harry, I yes. know. But you gotta update it a little bit better than that. It's like right. George Lucas went into a cave sometime around 1979, 1981, mm-hmm. and he emerged and didn't realize that he was 20 years behind everybody else. Well, it, that's pretty much true. And and what's interesting about this is um, I think Peter Jackson and George Lucas have the same problem in yeah. a lot of ways. But, uh, I mean, Peter Jackson is more likely to have somebody... Who who will say no to him. It's the beard. Is, really, it's, it's just the beard. And, and you know, possibly New Zealand. But part of the problem of Phantom Menace would be, you know, George Lucas having a fascination with the Gunkadeen and basically thinking he could just put it on screen in a sci-fi story and have it work when it right. really doesn't. Whereas, you know, Peter Jackson, kind of the same thing, because he was going to remake the Dam Busters for a long time. And the Dam Busters, while being a fantastic movie... The, the original film, there's the, one of the big things that came up when it was in production uh, and before the production died. The original film has a dog named Nigger. Uh, a black Labrador. What? It's true. No, The Dam Busters is a true story. We'll, we'll start there. Uh, it is the story of the squadron who, uh, who launched all all the attacks against the German dams during World War II with the specially designed bombs that would bounce in a proper way that would destroy the dams from the backside. So uh, the original original Star Wars borrowed a lot from this movie because all of these uh, dogfights going down the trenches of the rivers and then uh, shooting bombs at these bridges, pretty much exactly the same as the Death Star thing in the original Star Wars. But anyway... Dam Busters, true story, uh, the squadron really did have a dog named Nigger. And of course, when the the original movie came out, it was roughly contemporary. It was early 50s, late 40s, something like that, starred uh, Jimmy Stewart. So of course, the dog has the same name. And so when Peter Jackson announced that they were going to do the Dam Busters, the people who actually knew what the, the property was, was going, 
are they going to change the name of the dog? And which is an interesting question because yeah. it's like, that was the actual name of the dog. Right. But that's not a word that plays very well anymore. Hmm. What do but you do with it? But on the same time, you're telling the true story and that's who yeah. these people were. Yeah. And so maybe if there was a way you could do it to highlight the fact that even at that time, people who were good people still were unthinkingly racist. Yeah. And I, I don't know if they really hatched. I mean, I don't think I heard a definitive answer what they were going to do about it. But um, I think that something that was suggested, you know, change the dog's name to Trigger or uh, change the dog's name to like something shorter <laughs> that wasn't the full term or something like that. But what what do you do? Because if you leave it as nigger, people who aren't familiar with the original story are just going to be distracted by that. Right. Well, I think, I mean, I think there's a workaround. I mean, yeah. if you have a character that recognizes that that name is bad. Yeah. Then... Then then, then then the movie identifies the fact that it knows that that name is bad. Right. Even if it's historically still there, mm-hmm. I think then you, you've kind of written, you, you've kind of justified why it's there. Right. So. Right. Or, or if you put a byline in the credits or, or something like, uh, the, the dog's actual name was not Trigger, it was something else, but we changed yeah. it because of this. Something, some sort of acknowledgement. There, there are ways to get around it, but it was, um, it was an interesting question to come up. That's a really good segue into my last film. Go for it. The Blind Side. Yeah. Because it's a true story. It is a true story about a rich white family adopting a poor black kid and helping him achieve uh, and become drafted to the NFL. He was a physical prodigy. I did actually read the book it was based on, which is like it's in the sweet spot for me in that it's an underdog sports flick. It's also a true story. So the original the original book was about sort of tying in a shift in football gameplay, which was a very true thing of um, the rise of this specific um, player position to protect the the quarterback. And how important that player playing position became. And at the same time that in the book they were talking about why that happened in the game of football, they were like, and now over here, we're going to talk about this true story about this, this boy, Michael Orr, who had this weird story where he was befriended and then eventually adopted by a white family and um, had the specific skills necessary to fill this particular position on a football team. So why it's problematic is because, of course, the white savior mythology, but it's a true story. <laughs> like, yeah. this this really did happen. And mm-hmm. I really enjoy the movie because it's an underdog sports flick. And it's also Sandra Bullock, and I, I love her. But for the Republicans living, I believe it's in Memphis. It's somewhere like that. Yeah, they're deep south, right? And, uh, and they, but they're Christian. And there is a point where she specifically brings up, this is the Christian thing to do. This person needs our help. Mm -hmm. Like, and so it's sort of interesting to be like, oh my God, I've just seen a Southern Republican Christian actually do something generous. A wealthy Southern Republican Christian Mm -hmm. just do something like generous, like wow, this is a fantasy. Um, and uh, now, now, <laughs> I know, right? Uh, 
and they're, they're, they're good and bad of all stripes, Wendy. We know. Now, this. I will say that how how it does play into the this these tropes is that they do change the story for the movie and the way that they always do for biopics in that they do change the character of Michael to be a lot more naive than he was in true life, to play him up more as an innocent bystander. And so he does lose a lot of agency and become much more this innocent who needs to be saved and taken care of by by these, you know, wonderful white people right. willing to look past mm-hmm. the color of his skin. So on the one hand, I can see the racial problem, but on D- the other it hand... Go, does it go full green mile? Uh, yes, they kill him oh, in God. the end. What? Oh, no, 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 no. The uh, the the innocent character. The innocent. He is. He is very. I, I think you could put him and John Coffee in a similar Venn diagram. Okay. Okay. Yeah, they they are a little too similar mm. because obviously, if the person Michael Orr hadn't been a lovely person, this family would not have adopted him. True. Because. I do believe that this truly was a case of they started helping a young man and they fell they fell in love with him. Mm-hmm. Like he did become a part of their family. I I believe that narrative even if it's not true. Having read the book, like that does seem to be what actually did happen. The movie of course is you know, it you can't take the truth from the movie, but I did read the book. Well, and Michael um, Orr has never been like that's not the way that this thing went cuz I mean Michael Orr is still He's around. He's around. He can say yeah, he, stuff about yeah. this movie. <laughs> I think if he thought that he was, they were being really, really misrepresented. I think he, you know, he would have had the agency, you know, to say something. He doesn't mm-hmm. depend on that family anymore, and it seems like he really has love for them. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. um, in real life, yeah, but like they changed, like that he had never played football before, and it's like n- no, he had been named to all to the all city team. Like so, there were certain like they made him a little too. Naive, like he was magically little. good at football and, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. yeah. But he really was physically gifted. That is the one cool thing in the book is that you find out that he really was just one of those physical specimens who just could do shit. And, like, he competed for his school in, like, the discus and he broke a record never having done it before and not even doing it right, just picking it up and throwing it. Like, not throwing it the way you're supposed to throw a discus. He literally just sort of chucked it, and it broke a school record <laughs> because he was just that much of a physical specimen. So yeah, I do actually recommend the book, but that's my last movie. I've got Can I? Can I? I just, yes, I know we're running it. late, but I want to, no, I just want to say a little bit more about the blind side while we're here, or just yeah. movies, white savior movies in general. Because um, I think. I think I think the blind side on its own is a is a is a fine movie. I mean I've seen the blind side and like I think one of the issues that people have the concern with is that it seems like the narrative running through a white protagonist character is necessary for a movie to to gain ground or you know or to be recognized as a as a significant film and you know very right. frequently so like, like the, help the help runs through like white you know you know yep. white characters the revenant um, the revenant the last samurai the last um, samurai you know yeah, the, like the these... help is a really good example because here's a story about the black women who mm-hmm. were the linchpin of all of these households and the way the story is told is through the eyes of a white woman. Right. 
and I and, think I think there's I think there's problems there in the fact that we're missing like the black narratives I think in a lot of in a lot of films but at the same time part of me thinks if it gets the white person who needs to see that movie to that movie I don't mind that so much well yeah um yeah. You know, I need the white Memphis Republican to be like, oh, maybe helping a brown person isn't the worst thing in the world. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and so it's, it's it's the equivalent of a soft sell. Really. Right. Yeah. It's the here's your point of entry for you people who who mostly see other white people in your lives. Right. Here's your point of entry. And here's the rest of the story. I mean, I think at some time we need to be able to expound and be like, you can really go see 12 years a slave. Like, oh no, I can't see that movie, yeah. you know, but like at least getting some exposure to me is something that I think is, is helpful. And so I don't bash movies that are white leading necessarily in, in, in their entirety, even though I would love to see a lot more black and, you know, or just, culturally focused storylines out mm. in the universe absolutely or, or just you know a story where the person happens to be brown because mm-hmm. 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 i get frustrated that like stories about black people have so often have to be about their black experience or right. stories about indian people meaning hindu stories mm-hmm. about hispanic people stories about women have to be about their experience as being women it where it can, right. can we just have a story yeah, everybody who's not white male is a special interest group, and right. I'm, I'm kind of sick of that. Which, you know, like, so I'm starting to love that there are more characters who are breaking the strong female character mold of, look, it's just another cardboard cutout, but this one can kick your kneecaps in. Mm-hmm. Like, a true female character that is fully realized will not always be a hero. Right. They will be flawed. They will be fuck ups. They will, they will not necessarily be likable. Or mm-hmm. you know, so when we start seeing that, that's when we know we're making progress, and we're starting to get that with some female characters. We're starting to get that with some persons of color, like characters. So we're making progress, but oh my god, there's <laughs> so far to go. I'd, I'd also like to uh, drop a brief reference going back to Tarantino mm-hmm. with uh, <laughs> Django Unchained. I love how that movie subverts the white savior narrative because you have Christopher Christoph Waltz coming in as the white savior to the character of Django. And then Django is the lead and Christoph Waltz is the sidekick. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're partners uh, in, in uh, bounty hunting, but it's very clear that Jamie Foxx is the lead of the movie and he's driving the action and, the the whole story centers around him. So I really love that subversion and I wish it would happen more often. <laughs> Christoph Waltz is just so much more powerful of an actor in that in oh, that particular God, film yeah. though. That it's like, so oh good. I really want to see that character do more in this movie. Well I um, mean you see but, yeah. but that happens. He does all do the a time. lot. He has great stuff in that movie. But, but you see that yeah, all the time with yeah. Tarantino movies. It's like, oh Sid Hag's only here for like three minutes, but I want to see more of that. Yeah. Or uh I mean, really, the the uh, the star performance in Django Unchained is uh, Leonardo DiCaprio as Candy. Yeah. Oh yeah. God. But anyway, that's that's uh, going off the track. So um, I don't know. Do we have any final thoughts about these racially complicated movies? Are they truly inappropriate? Well, I think I think several of them are, but 
that doesn't mean they need to go away. No, I, think, I, don't, I, think, I don't think any of be... them should go away. Yeah. You know, um, I mean, I think we need to recognize the flaws in their, you know, in our history. And mm-hmm. I think that they're a good magnifying glass to hold up to that to that character and in, in the way that we've told stories and the stories that we've told mm-hmm. you know birth of a nation was the first movie that to be screened at the white house yeah you know um which is horrible um but hey <laughs> um, that doesn't that doesn't mean that doesn't mean that we should ignore the fact that that movie exists right. and the history of what that movie has been bravo Bravo. All right. So then it's time for us to move into our Pleasure Dome recommendations. Although Duck hasn't answered the questions. Oh. Remember, we, we, haven't, we haven't done the questions in a while. Oh, we need these to, are easy we, questions. Okay. We've been meaning okay. to revise these for a year, Melissa. We are I know. bad <laughs> I, I've people. I've been busy. I'm getting married in a couple weeks. We have been busy. This is not yeah, just you. Do not just pull this on yourself. I have also not done shit about it. <laughs> Uh, okay. Do we remember the questions? <laughs> I do. The qu- okay. first question okay. is, hey, Duck, who are you? Uh, I am Duck. I'm just a dude trying to make the world better every day. All good right. job. All right. Very good. Hey, Duck, what do you do? I put my finger in as many pies as I can. <laughs> my brain did not go to the right place with that. <laughs> I would like um, us all to note that I didn't say anything. <laughs> I, I, I try to I try to to be a person who experiences and does many different things. Okay, that's a good answer. Very good. All right, Duck. This will lead naturally into our pleasure dome recommendations, so this is nice. Okay. Mm-hmm. The first, the third question is: If you could build your own personal pleasure dome, so think of it like your own very own man cave. Right. Okay. Like this is your spot you go to that is made just for your own bliss. What would be in it? Some some kind of water. Um, <laughs> like like I don't know if it's I don't know if that's a like a like a small pool, but they're definitely like I love I love being in water. So a water feature would be would be pretty awesome. Oh, very nice. Um, yeah. Mm. Yeah. I'm a huge I'm a huge animal nut, so there'd probably be some kind of really cool pets. Would there be a llama? There a there sloth? might be a llama. Um, a although sloth? llamas are kind of smelly. What about a sloth? I could do I could do I could do a sloth, get a good three toed sloth, you know, hanging it, around. The nice thing about sloths is you can bathe them and then just hang them up to dry. <laughs> <laughs> they look really kind of creepy though when they're wet. I don't know if you've ever seen a wet yeah, sloth. Yeah, they're kind of terrifying. Like, yeah, a little it really bit. accentuates their their really long claws. They kind of look like I like they get kind of thin manish, you know, um going on when they're when they're wet. Yeah, yeah, but I'm pretty sure you could outrun a sloth. <laughs> Um, big projection TV, mm. probably, so that I could screen movies or watch TV shows on a big screen. Yeah. Play video games, you know, whatever. And then just good people. Yeah, right? Yeah. Yeah. Very okay, good. then the fourth question is. Okay. And the final one. And this is the last question, and it leads into our Pleasure Dome recommendations, because that's what it is, is, all right, so would you make a recommendation of anything uh, that has delighted you made your life better that you would recommend to our listeners oh gosh that's um that's a good question um (laughs) like the vague answer is like is just always try to 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 be willing to go outside of your box Mm. you know um you know which you know could mean just about anything um 
but but I'll, like I always try to I always like to try new things and sometimes you find out you don't like a thing and sometimes you find out you do mm-hmm. um you know I I know as a kid like there were all these preconceptions of foods that I wouldn't like mm-hmm. you know that I would try later on in life and be like oh these are my favorite foods I love liver I love anchovies, yeah. you know, but like, like my presumption, cause everybody's like, oh, that's, that's gross. You see it in like kids movies and stuff or on sitcoms and then you just. You broccoli know, is you, evil. Yeah. You know, but broccoli is awesome. Broccoli Eat your broccoli. Is awesome. um, Frozen overcooked broccoli is a little bit evil. <laughs> guys. Mm, well, mm. I mean. Mushy broccoli. Frozen overcooked anything is probably not very good. It's true. Like Hitler cooks broccoli that long. You know. You know, Hitler might not have been a bad cook. We don't know. <laughs> well, he cooked himself really like, well done. You know, see, I feel, I feel like you know, since when we discovered the body, it was really well done. He does not know how to c- properly cook meat. That's that's fair enough. Okay. I guess there were. Like, <laughs> I I think I killed that one. I'm yeah. sorry. <laughs> um, so so yeah, I'd say I'd say get out your get out of your box. Try some new things. Watch the kind of movie that you never really watch. Like oh, I've never seen anime. I'll try an anime. I you know I'm not I'm not really experienced in westerns. Let me try that. Just you know pick something that's a little bit out of your element and do it and just learn from that experience and see if you can find something new to appreciate. Oh, duck. Bravo. Bravo. I'm feeling all warm and hopeful (laughs) about humanity. All right. (laughs) I have a pleasure to recommendation. Excellent. What is your recommendation, Wendy? Ryan Alexander, one of our listeners, Mm -hmm. uh, sent me a Christmas present because he's wonderful. Well, he is. um, It is an album by Sarah Bareilles. And she's a pop singer. I really like her music because it is piano focused. And um, it's just... It's a little bit different. It's a little bit more folk sound. Mm-hmm. Uh, he sent me an album called What's Inside, Songs from Waitress. I don't know if you knew this, but the movie Waitress is being made into a Broadway musical. Cool. And I'm pretty sure that these are the concept songs for the musical. Because if you've seen the movie Waitress and you listen to these, it's like, oh, that's that moment from the movie. Oh, that is definitely this character from that movie in this moment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they're really, they're very cerebralist. So they're really lovely and, um, tuneful and, uh, very emotional songs. She really, I, she always like hits my heart when I hear one of her new songs. And so I really like it. I feel like all of the songs should be titled after a different kind of pie. I know, yes. right? But if you've you know, never the seen Earl's the movie, no good pie is a song number. And then, uh, yeah. yeah, Earl. I don't want to have Earl's baby pie. I don't want to um, have Earl's baby pie. <laughs> so I do recommend the movie, FYI. But um, I do. I really like this music, so I recommend it. And now, of course, now I'm kind of like I think I might want to see this musical. Maybe it'll tour or something. I don't know. Hmm. Anyway, that's my recommendation. What do you got, Melissa? I am currently writing down Hunter S. Thompson the musical because that's what flashed into my head for no apparent reason. (laughs) I wrote it down, though, because I feel like I can use it sometime. Anyway, I have a recommendation. What is your recommendation? So on Saturday night, Ellie Ellingsberg took me to a concert. We went to see Ellen Cumming 
sing sappy songs live. I I am bitter and jealous. You know As that, right? As you should be, because it was amazing. Okay, so Alan Cumming, a.k.a. That was at the, the Minnesota Orchestra, right? Yeah, it was at uh, Orchestra Hall. and uh, You were the- not the only one of my Minnesota friends who was there that night. I saw about four or five of you, and I hated all of you. Yeah, and uh, Nicole Emery, who I was in the Arctic Circle with, was also there. With her Karen husband. Bradley, who uh-huh. was the the musician that I collaborated with on High Flight, was there. Yep. The the, the Uber nerds were there. Yeah. yeah. I'm so, so jelly. So anyway, uh, Alan Cumming, uh, a.k.a. Nightcrawler, was there doing basically covers of... <laughs> of Katy Perry songs and Billy Joel songs and whatever. And uh, in between, telling just showbiz stories so it was kind of half uh storytelling kind of in the liza minnelli mode and uh half cover songs and it was absolutely delightful because he he's so fun he really is and he's so sexy he is and he he can really wrap up an audience he he's very conversational he's a lot of fun and uh he even sings with that scottish accent it's wonderful and he's twinkly he's very twinkly (laughs) no he's got that twinkle in his eye and he's got those dimples and he's just you just he'd be up for shenanigans that's all i'm saying oh good lord yes right I could shenanigan yes, with him. because I heard those stories. So, yeah, it, it was delightful. And he uh, mostly kept his clothes on, which uh, is novel for me, so. Well, that's a disappointment. I know, I know. But, you know, I've already, I've already seen his ass, so. All right, listeners, this has been another episode of Xanadu Cinema Pleasure Dome. We have had a remarkably, maybe an appropriately good time talking mm. about racial issues in movies. Uh, I have been one of your co-hosts, Wendy, joined as always by Melissa. Hello. Goodbye. <laughs> and of course, our special racial correspondent, <laughs> Duck. Hey, thanks, everybody. And we will talk to you again next week. Thanks so much. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, I'm one of a kind. What can I say? Thank you for joining us in the Xanadu Cinema Pleasure Dome. Our theme song was written by Tim Wick and Jeffrey Brown and recorded and mastered by Chad Dutton. New episodes arrive every Thursday. You can find us on iTunes and on Stitcher. You can also visit us at xanaducinema.com, follow us on Twitter at Xanadu Cinema, and like us on Facebook at Xanadu Cinema Pleasure Dome. White savior, white savior, white savior, magical negro, magical negro, magical negro. <laughs> <laughs>